Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, this is Julie Bowen. And I'm Chad Sanders. You are listening to Quitters, the podcast. 40 million Americans quit their jobs last year, and now they're just floating in the abyss that comes after you quit. And they probably feel really lonely, a little bit scared. But they don't have to because we're here. We're really interested in talking to the people who have decided to walk away from something that they felt was really life and self-defining and how that opens more doors going forward. So that's what we're going to get into here on Quitters is what was your life like? What did you need to quit? How did you quit it? And what is your life like now? Yeah, sometimes you have to give up. Sometimes you've got to give up something really important to who you thought you were in order to become who you need to be. This week, we're going to talk about me, which makes me wildly uncomfortable. I'm very nervous. Well, you have layers of quidditch under you. You've quit some really big stuff. When I first started talking to Chad, whose idea was this podcast, Chad said, you know, I Googled you, Julie, and there's nothing about your life that's really vulnerable out there. So taking a step where I'm going to be a little bit more revealing about my life, and hopefully that'll encourage guests to get a little bit more revealing about theirs, is nerve-wracking. I can tell. And I'm going to have my turn in the chair. But what I would like to say is that the places you've been and all the stuff you've left behind, you've carried with you such a high level of detail of those experiences. Your memories as a storyteller are really distinct. All these things you've been through, it's kind of crazy watching you weave this story of your life together. It seems like you know every single crevice of the story so well. Oof. Wow. That's giving me a lot of credit. So welcome to Quitters, the podcast. We hope there's something that grabs you here. We are looking for the upside in the end of everything, and we hope we help get you to your quit. This is essentially the first time we're going to talk about knowing each other. Yeah. So you wrote that op-ed piece for the New York Times, and I read it and forgot about it because it made me too uncomfortable. (laughs) It did. I don't want love text from my white friends. They made that Oh, they made that title? What? Yeah, you don't get to pick the title. What? I know. I didn't know that. I wanted the title to be Don't Send Love, Send Money. And they changed it. I still think my title's better, but they know what to do. People clicked it, I guess. I... Didn't like it. It made me really uncomfortable. And it made me go, oh, because I would be that person. I'd be like, (laughs) my intentions are so good. I totally would have and have said the wrong things over and over. And that's why we have these bells. So that we can highlight those moments when either one of us feels like the other one has stepped into it or that we just want to call ourselves out. And I definitely have found that I feel like I'm not allowed to call you out. I was going to ask, you haven't really rung the bell on me. What's up with that? And why don't, why can't you call me out? I don't know. Have I offended? No, you, I mean, you haven't offended me. I feel like I have more room to give to you. I've taken up so much room in the world. (laughs) 
<laughs> you're very you're very powerful, man. You're so uncomfortable saying that. Well, I don't feel I'll never feel powerful, but I do feel aware that I've been part of the dominant culture and reaping the benefits for a long time. And I do not want this podcast, this series of interviews, this you and I talking. I don't want to be the voice of white fragility, but there's times I am fragile and I'm shocked by it when it happens. I signed up for this. I signed up to have conversations about quitting things. Mm. And underneath that, we agreed that we would be straight with each other. And it's been really exhausting. Mm. <laughs> I fall asleep at night like somebody clubbed me over the head. Damn. But it's not bad. I really, really like you and I love you as a human. But I know that I have to earn your respect and I can step in it. Well, first, there's one thing I want to say, which is that your power does not start and end at the fact that you're white. You have a really radioactive, powerful energy about you as a person. I don't think a lot of people have your engine. And then the energy around you is such that it makes everybody else have an engine. Really? You're like Russell Westbrook, kind of. You're so like... Damn, that's the nicest compliment anyone has ever given me. <laughs> that I'm in any way, shape, or form like Russell Westbrook. You're like Russell Westbrook. <laughs> oh my God. I think you play so hard, you make everybody else feel like they have to play hard. I recognize that that's a lot of privilege to be able to be that messy, the way that I could be energetically messy. You have held me accountable and said, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you really want us to be friends and you really want to talk honestly, sometimes I have to call you out on stuff. You won't respect me if I don't. I mean, and you won't do it on purpose. It'll just fade away. The inertia of status quo is just so strong. It's just like such a violent, you know, tidal wave. And I so- know. You won't mean to, but over time, you'll just you'll just have your way. It's true. You're dead right. You chose to make yourself very vulnerable in your quits. I mean, I've quit a marriage, and it's hard to talk about because it's not fair to him because yeah. he can't tell his side. But that was really painful. And I think in this series of interviews and stuff, a lot of our quits are just going to keep coming back over and over. And... I quit having an eating disorder when I was a teenager. That was terrible. I'm trying to quit being comfortable in the status quo. Mm. I'm trying, and it's not easy. And the inertia of the status quo, it serves me. I like it. Yeah. Is that bad? I mean, no. is it hard to hear? I mean, is it hard to hear? I was flying on the plane here. I ended up was in aisle six. (laughs) I wanted to be in aisles one through five. Uh Uh-huh. And there was this little girl sitting behind me on the plane with, I guess her best friend was along for the ride and her mom, little white girl. She was probably 12. It was her tone of voice. She knew so much about flying and so much about travel and so many things I did not know at that age. All of it was just reading to me as like, this girl has had so much exposure. Her mom does not tell her no and she's entitled. When we landed, I heard her say to her friend, I wrote it down, so I'm going to paraphrase, but when she landed, she was like, I hope we're at the front of the plane on the next plane like we usually are. (gasps) That's where all the white people sit. No, no. Yeah, yeah. No. And she was right. Wait a minute. Yeah. She was white. Uh Uh-huh. And she was talking to another white person? She was talking to another little white girl, and she wasn't 
saying it to be incendiary. She was saying it so matter-of-factly. She wasn't saying white people only sit in the front of the plane, but what she was just pointing out was that at the front of the plane, that's where white people sit. That's first class. This was three days ago. And so you're a smart, attractive, blonde woman with wealthy parents who went to Brown. So it totally resonates that. I'm sure you feel like every day you can just sort of choose what happens in the world, kind of. For the most part, I do think like if something isn't going my way, I have the power to change it. And that is an enormous privilege. And acknowledging that it's a privilege doesn't mean I want it to go away either. I want everyone to have that privilege. But where you and I intersect, we're not alpha predators. (laughs) We're not, because we're not white men. (laughs) You got the sharks and you got, uh, is it a lion is the alpha predator in the? Yeah, like Shark in the ocean and a lion. Right, these these are our alpha predators. And I'm not unfamiliar with the feeling of, oh, there's only so far I can shift right or left. There's only so much agency I have right now. I hate to sort of paint you in generalities because you are special. You are something different. And I don't mean you're different from other white people, but you really are very singular, I think, as far as I can see you. I'm like, so that makes me so anxious because I'm like, I have no response. I'm supposed to just sort of take that in. And yet you were not happy with me yesterday. But I wasn't mad at you either. That's where I'm very immature, carry around this five-year-old that's like, very binary, very good, bad as opposed to a more nuanced, life is in the gray. Life is much more about the subtle and being a grown-up is accepting all that. And there's a part of me that just was like, you don't like me because you (laughs) said that thing. It's like, (laughs) that is fragility and it is immature part of me. I mean, a lot of me is a grown-ass woman, three kids, a lot of responsibilities. But if somebody confronts me on something, It goes right to my five-year-old. And I don't like that part of myself. Hmm. It's complicated because I feel like your five-year-old is so present on you all the time anyway. (laughs) And I think that that's part of why you're singular. Do you like hanging around? I almost want to say, do you like hanging around grown-ups? But then that implies that I'm not one. But do you like hanging around people your age? When we go to a family kind of get-together or something, Halloween, my kids, we all ended up at this impromptu over at someone's house. And there's a bunch of grownups there. They're all in the kitchen. They're all having a glass of wine. And then all the kids are out in the yard. They're doing TikTok dances and jumping on the trampoline. And I have two sons in that crew, two 12-year-old sons that are like, Mom, (laughs) not cool. (laughs) But I'm one of you. Mm -hmm. You are not one of us. And I definitely have a harder time. You're right. That's very astute. Grown-ups can be so boring. (laughs) Yeah, what's up with that? Do you find grown-ups boring? I think I'm seeing the glaze come over people's eyes minute by minute. I'm watching it happen. People sort of saying, I guess this is what the universe has for me, and I'll just sort of lay in it. The hopes and dreams are dropping away. Like, you want to be a writer? Now they're going to law school. Or finding the backup. In other dimensions, giving up stuff that they like. Like what? Weed or? No, I mean, no. No. Um, oh, no. That's oh, the no. last to go, I would get for, <laughs> for the people I'm talking about. Like creative ideas, hobbies, physical activity, friendships. I don't want to lose that you feel like you can't ring the bell on me or challenge me or something because I need you to do that because I really look up to you. Well, I just have to really check myself that I'm not ringing the bell on you because I mm, knee jerk. Like, whoa. 
He rang the bell on me. But you are harder on me. I don't know, Julie. There's something about you. I kind of think you like it. Like what? I think you kind of like when someone looks you in the eye and is like, Julie, (laughs) this thing hurt my feelings. (laughs) I do, actually. It's true. Because I don't like what I can't see. I'd rather see anger, frustration, love. I'd rather have it all in front of me and deal with it. Because my mind will make up shit that's way worse than whatever you're saying. But it is hard to hear that I've hurt someone's feelings because I'm always like, but that's not my intention. I didn't mean that. And that's garbage because you have to accept the way that your words are taken in the world. And you can't just say, well, that's not what I meant. And I would love to say that's not what I meant. Something that I would like to quit is just building up resentment because I want to avoid confrontation. And I know that that's why we have the trusty bells. And I really appreciate it. But in the moment, chin quivering, like I'm being reprimanded. Somehow I've done something wrong. And I've read the books. <laughs> and I was literally like, I have the very definition of white woman's tears are coming at you. And I'm like, no, no. It's a real internal struggle. But if I can feel uncomfortable, if I can have an honest conversation about it, then I don't know. Maybe there's somebody that can relate to that as well. That's cool. But I also am not trying to, as I said, be the voice of white women or white fragility or anything, anybody's voice other than my own. I have opted out and quit. I engage in social media as a one way, as an output. I don't read the comments. I have a no Googling myself rule because it makes me so self-conscious. And this idea that I have a brand of any variety, like, oh, that's on brand for Julie. She's a mom. That that makes me somehow impervious to wants, needs, things, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, like all those things. I can't stand living up to that. But I also know that what I put out in the world is whitewashed greatly. And I'm threading that line because it pays my kids. So, okay. Wow. This is great, Terrain. You're dancing with the line just by doing this show. Right. Why are you doing that dance? There's things people in the media will forgive or can get over in a a nice white lady on TV. They will forgive rosé all day kind of attitudes. <laughs> but, you know, you get arrested for drunk driving, you don't get forgiven. I do feel that I need to keep my shit tight. And not necessarily for my kids who know that I'm a messy, complicated person. But I feel like in order to maintain a certain neutrality and get jobs and get endorsement deals and get those things, I need to represent something that people like and can relate to. I think people like and relate. I would hate that person if that's who I had to do this podcast with. Right. This person is the best. Like, this person is so likable and so relatable. I know I'm not necessarily the market that you're speaking to. It feels like you're taking a risk a little bit by even doing this thing, by Mm -hmm. doing it with me. You don't exactly know what's going on in my head. I am a little bit of a wild card for you. You don't know what I'll say into a microphone. So you are taking a little bit of risk. And I think you're a risk taker. And I think you're sort of an edgy person, which is all the things that you're saying you don't want these people to know about you. Okay, so I was lucky enough to have had a taste of public, I won't say fame, but like public judgment is Mm -hmm. what it feels like, quite a bit earlier than Modern Family. So by the time I got there, I was a little bit 
better braced for public judgment. What was that? I don't even know. I, no, I just done enough TV and commercials and stuff before okay. that yeah. when somebody popped out of a bush to take my picture, it did not floor me. By the time I got to Modern Family, where it was happening with some degree of regularity, I don't owe any of these people my truth. Mm-hmm. I owe my kids, my family. I owe my loved ones. Them, I owe my truth. I don't owe anybody my truth. And I'm still walking that line as far as being a private person, but also going, you know what? It matters to me. I love our conversations. They matter to me. Mm. Talking about where we're the same and how we're different and how we perceive people, places, and things completely differently because of the way that we grew up or the way we see them the same, because we're both from Maryland. I mean, we're both from Maryland, is interesting to me and makes me feel like I'm doing something. It challenges me. Okay. And I want to challenge myself, but I'm still going to dance on that line. Yeah, I think it's fun. I think the dance of it is interesting. What I'm trying to figure out is who are we doing this for? When I'm doing a TV show or movie or anything else, I never think about as an actor, as a producer, it's different, but as an actor, I never think, Who's watching this and how do they feel about it? I just think, let's make this as good as we can. Yes. And that's the way I felt when we started doing this podcast. And then I got paranoid. Mm -hmm. What if they cancel me? Because I have not led a perfect life. Because I wasn't a perfect, healthy teenager. Because I made a lot of really shitty choices in my 20s. And if that's out there... Am I costing my kids something? Mm. And that is what I care about the most. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. How risky would you like to be? Say whatever I wanted to. Yeah. And not worry about my next job and not worry about who was going to say anything and not worry about blowback on social media or if it's a slow news day. This summer, my sister and I going hiking, and for some reason, that was on the nightly news. Mm -hmm. That is not that interesting. (laughs) Now, that was funny and I didn't really care. Yeah. But what if it was something negative? That would feel really bad and it feels like that could feel intolerably bad and I don't have the strength of character is the honest answer. I don't think I could live with myself. With the shame. Yeah. I had so much shame and I want to quit shame but I don't know how. After I had twins, I went on a talk show and they were talking about how do you breastfeed both of your twins? And I put up a picture of me breastfeeding the twins. It was from above and my boobs were massive, <laughs> like half a basketball and half a basketball. These big white boobs and then there's these white heads and it was like ball, ball, ball. It, lo- it literally looked like four balls <laughs> from above. And it wasn't obscene and it wasn't gratuitous, but it was crazy photo. And it was, again, slow news day or whatever. Suddenly, it's everywhere. And suddenly, it's this source of deep shame. Why did you put out a picture of you breastfeeding? I thought it was funny. It didn't show anything 
obscene or didn't even show my children's faces. They were buried in my boobs. And that was a couple of years of shame for me. Wow. Yeah. And I felt terrible. And I want so badly to be able to quit that kind of shame and just go, so what? I'm a mother of twins that breastfed. They should put a statue up for me instead of me feeling shame about this picture. And I remember my cousin said to me, well, you walked into a meat grinder. The machine is there and it's grinding. Don't give it stuff to grind. And if you care, if you're sensitive in any way, which I am, don't give the machine anything to grind up. That feels like a complicated irony for (laughs) someone who, for a living, is out in front, is seen and watched and now heard. And not even really just professionally that way, but just sort of the way you engage with the world, it feels very face first, not in a look at me way, but just there's no like safety. There's no screen in front of you. I'm always doing that with other people. Mm. I'm never going to be the one that gets up and dances on the table alone and is like, look at me, because I feel a lot of shame about getting attention, but I don't feel any shame or any hesitation about leaning into another person, asking them all about themselves, trying to make a connection. I can't stop myself, sometimes to my own detriment. Sometimes I talk too much, but that's to me much easier because it's about the other person. It's not about me. And that's what I thought I could do here. And so being on the spot is hard. That's what you thought you could do? Here in this room with other people, I can... Make it about them. Yeah. Conceptually, if we did this and you listened to it on the other end and you were like, perfect, that's my story. What would we have talked about? What would have come out? What would people (gasps) have thought of you when they heard it? Feels a little bit like your virginity. Like you can only lose it once. But once it's gone, it's gone. And I'm very anxious about blowing it, wasting that opportunity. Like, I'm supposed to say something important about my life. Like, quitting the things that I have quit is somehow important. It is. In my opinion, the most important thing you can say about it is honestly how it happened and not in a way that is intentional. If I think about your eating disorder in high school— Yeah, high school bad until I ended up in a mental hospital. So, (laughs) so I mean. I just threw raw meat. (laughs) (laughs) No one knows that. Well, how did it happen? What eating disorder did you have? Anorexia, where you don't eat. Mm -hmm. I was never a puker. No shame, no shade. We're all members of the same tribe of the... I feel bad about myself in the world, so I'm going to control what I can. And it can't be the world, so it's going to be the body. Mm. I just knew that I didn't want to be fat. And it felt like something that was out of control and that I was going to get ridiculed for it. And I didn't like it. So if I could get that under control. But then this thing happened by accident almost. I was a very depressed and anxious teenager. And I felt a lot of shame about my body and I didn't look like a girl. I just sort of looked like a greasy, blobby thing. And I really didn't like it. And when I started losing weight, I started running because I'm not good at sports. I cannot catch a ball. I cannot throw a ball. I can't hit a ball. But I did figure out that I could run in a straight line. And if you just do more of it, you get better at it. And I lost a bunch of weight, but what I discovered was it turned down the volume on my anxiety. 
And this became this enormous coping mechanism to kind of get below subsistence level of eating. You kind of go into a different mode. Your body goes into a different mode, or at least mine did. It didn't have time for anxiety anymore. It goes into like survival. Mm. Everything gets a lot calmer. You're a lot more focused and it's just... Like fasting? I don't know. In an unhealthy way? I guess. Yeah. It became such an efficient coping mechanism for the anxiety that I was well beyond what I cared about, my weight. I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop managing my anxiety and my depression with this feeling, this kind of clarity of starving, I guess. How did people treat you differently when you got that skinny? Oh, well, first, it was nothing but you look amazing. Oh my gosh, you look so great. I didn't even recognize you. It was just nothing but kudos. And then it was like, are you okay? And then it was, okay, that's enough. Who said that? Well, my family, my parents, they're like, that's enough. And I was like, I am in a place where it doesn't even matter what I look like. I now am controlling something very internal. It was almost like If I ate properly, the engine would come back on again. And that engine was anxiety. That engine was fear. And that engine was depression. And that engine was, I don't fit in. I don't belong. I didn't understand how to be a teenage girl. They would all go to the bathroom together. Why? And one day I remember walking my sister, one of my sisters, Molly, who's one of my closest friends. And we've always been really tight. She was cool. Mm. And she saw me walking to lunch alone one time at school. And I walked by the ninth grade day room where the ninth graders would hang out. And she runs outside and grabs me and says, what are you doing? I said, I'm walking to lunch. She said, alone? What is wrong <laughs> with you? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I didn't get all the cues and the social cues and what you were supposed to do. And they'd be like, we're going to the bathroom. Do you want to come? No. <laughs> Why? Did something happen in there? (laughs) And I just felt really foreign in my body and in the world. And my poor parents, you know, they tried. They put me in therapy and everything. But it just got to a point where it was my only coping mechanism for my anxiety and my depression. And so they had to lock her up for five months. Do you want to talk about that? I mean, it was... A little scary. I'm just trying to make sure I'm following. So you weren't eating. You became very skinny. I became very skinny. Frighteningly so to your parents. Yeah, like when you lie in bed on the side and I couldn't lie on the side because my knees would hurt too much. I'd have pillows like around me and stuff. And I didn't even like how skinny I was. That's why I'm always hesitating to say when I've talked about going into the mental hospital. And when people say, what'd you go in for? I never want to say an eating disorder because it sounds... An eating disorder is one symptom of this big disease. Right. Disease is depression and anxiety, really. And an inability to fit into the world. I don't know what you call that. But my way of coping with it was not good and it wasn't healthy. It took me a really long time. I didn't get out of the mental hospital and was fixed. I was there for five months. Intensive therapy, group therapy, all kinds of therapy. What was that like? Well, it was really weird because it felt crazy at first because the door locked behind me. And I was like, the door just locked. Okay, sorry. I just got to get it piece (laughs) by piece. So you're how many years old? 17. You're 17. Your parents are like, you're going to a mental hospital. That's right. They said that. Yeah. And you say, okay. No, I tried to run. From them. Yeah. But you couldn't run. Where was I going to go? Where was I going to run? I was in boarding school. They flew up to pick me up. My friend at the time was 
in cahoots. She was being a good friend, but it felt to me at the time like, oh my God, you're trapping me. Said, I want to talk to you. Took me in this room. There was the school psychiatrist. I'm like, what's going on? What's going on? He said, your parents are on their way here. They're going to take you to a facility. And I was wearing not running shoes. They had a heel or something. And I just, boots, whatever. I pull them off, threw them out, not Crocs. (laughs) But I threw them out the window. Your shoes? Second floor. I was just like, as an act of, I'm going to run now. I don't need these shoes. I'm out of here. I just threw them and just ran. Shit. And you're fast. But where am I going to go? Where was I going? I don't remember the next 24 hours. You blacked out kind of. It was, I just knew that there was this black pit of whatever the worst fear, the worst anxiety, the worst monster you can imagine that I had been keeping at bay. And I just felt in that moment, I was just dropped in it. Was it shame? I don't know. That feeling was just pure terror. It was like a blackout. It was like it dropped in there. I felt like I was falling to the bottom of a well. Mm. It was a lack of control. It was knowing I was out of control, but that I was now going to surrender. I imagine it's the feeling that people have somewhat when they're getting locked up somehow or Mm. they're having their rights taken away somehow. I knew the gig was up. They were taking me away. There was no way to get around it. I didn't have any money. I was in high school. Yeah, This was happening. I was only 17, so I didn't have a legal right to fight it. And they weren't wrong. I was really sick. You needed help. I was like, you don't understand. I know this weird process of killing myself is actually how I'm staying alive. Had you already acknowledged before this moment, had you accepted the identity of, I have a disorder? I have an eating disorder. Oh, yeah. No, that was when I was 14. 14. Wow. So you knew that. Yeah. So from 14 to 17, it was a roller coaster. So they went down to the mental hospital. And I did intake. You can say bye to your parents now. Bye. And the door, it's like a studio door. It's like, and I was like, oh, fuck. I was very scared. I had to sleep in, you know, the observant room where they look at you. Mm. You're an observation. You can't go to the bathroom alone. You can't have a razor or scissors or a fork. What'd you do in there? Well, what am I supposed to do all day? You had no cell phone. No cell phone. There was no internet. There was nothing. It read books and it was hanging out. What am I supposed to be doing? And then you get these reports because we were living on, on this hall with anywhere between 20 to 25 mental patients. It was a mixed male and female, this wing, and it's called Hall A5. And on A5, all the women that were being observed were in one room. And then all the men that were being observed in another. At any given time, four people maybe being observed at a time. And you had to stay in that room for at least a week mm. until you sort of earned the right to not be watched while you were sleeping. And some of the other eating disorder girls were in there and they would try and sneak under the window and do sit-ups at night. We were being stuffed, by the way. They made me gain 30 pounds in the hospital. So what did you do all day? It was controlled. You had to eat every single thing in front of you. You finished and they're like, and here's a milkshake. It was so much food. And then you get these reports. You're not participating enough in milieu therapy. What the hell is that? I was still trying to finish my senior year. I brought a bunch of work. I was trying to do a term paper. No, no, no. You're supposed to be participating in milieu therapy. I go, I don't know what that is. And that meant interacting with others. I got to go and interact with Bob, who just washed his hands 550 times. What am I supposed to say to him? I'm mentally ill. 
they're mentally ill. Why would we want to talk to each other? I don't like. They don't want to talk to me. I don't want to talk to them. We're all doing our thing. Like it did. I didn't understand. I talked to my therapist when my shrink would come to the hall, or when I'd earned enough permissions, I could go across the hall to a class called Feelings. Mm. <laughs> you had to go to Feelings class and list feelings. It was actually that one has stuck with me to this day. Like so when I can ask my kids, like, how do you feel? And they're like, I feel like you're mean to me. Not a feeling. <laughs> it's not on the feelings board. Do you see it anywhere on here? So I lost all my privileges. I got locked back on the hall. And when somebody does something purposely or by accident, they lock the hall down again. I don't know why, but I suddenly lost weight. Mm. I don't know how. I can tell you my metabolism was wonky doodle going from not eating for four years to like, <laughs> here's a milkshake with your milkshake. They wake you up at 5 a.m. to get weighed. And I had lost a pound. And I was like, huh. Didn't even know how that happened. But all of a sudden, I'm in milieu therapy that day, wandering around, making conversation. And then someone's like, you know, I'm really mad at you. Well, that's because you're crazy. And he's like, no, I'm mad at you because the whole hall is locked down. Oh. You lost weight. You just screwed all of us over. I can't even go for a walk outside. And I was allowed to do that. But now we're all locked down because of you. What? They didn't tell you those rules? Did you get fixed? No. I left after five months and I immediately just went, backslid. So you came out with 30 new pounds on oh, you. Oh, God. It looked like somebody ate Julie. And you went back. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't go as far down. No. I wasn't going to like death levels again, but I definitely backslid. Yeah. I still was having so much anxiety, but this was all before... They came up with SSRIs before they came up with Prozac, Lexapro, any of those things. I was not on a single med. And finally, when I was 19, they came out with Prozac. And it was the beginning of the quit. The mental hospital, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, mom. I'm sorry, dad. That wasn't it. <laughs> they tried, but nope. It was medication was absolutely necessary for me to finally step away from this thing that defined me in every single way I could imagine. Every day I thought about how to manage my anxiety and my fear by managing my size, myself, how much space I was going to take up in the world. I wanted to disappear. Mm. And it wasn't working. I just didn't want anyone to see me. And the big quit finally started when I got on Prozac. It wasn't like, I'm fixed. It is possible that I don't have to live this way. It's not 100% sure, mm -hmm. but there's a possibility that I can get past this. Okay, you're not the thinnest person in the room. So living with the discomfort, Prozac made it possible for me to tolerate the discomfort. It was like wearing a little bit of a suit of armor. And then bit by bit, experientially come to know that I could do this. But it was really hard to let go of my identity as like, that skinny little girl. How do you think of yourself now? I have to say, getting old blows. <laughs> getting old in HD really blows. Like, Modern Family came along when HD came along. At the start of my career, TV was on film. Everything was beautiful. <laughs> but fuck if I don't give a shit anymore. I feel like my body and I are good. I have had to work really hard in my career and 
Let me tell you, breastfeeding babies and getting up at 5 a.m. to go to work for 12 hours and then come back and do it again on almost no sleep. Being strong is all I care about. I need to be strong and I need to be rested. And I have a totally different relationship with my body now. I want to be as strong as I can be. I think of you as very strong. I mean, physically strong. I don't think you can pick up something super heavy, but I think you can chisel down a boulder with a pickaxe, which yeah. I think is more valuable than like, like picking up something super keep heavy. Keep going, keep going. Yeah, and think about it and find the right spot to hit and learn how to hit it better. And then eventually it's rubble. And then you could sweep it away instead of picking it up and moving it. I appreciate that. But I think that part of quitting that relationship with my body, like my body is the enemy, had to do with getting some feeling of validation that I could do other things that I had value in this world. I've always had moments where, oh God, fittings to go to something where they're going to put you in shoes that hurt so much. And I had this woman, the stylist that deals with me and she's a goddamn rock star because that is a therapy session in and of itself to go into that room that's covered in mirrors and stand there in some underwear with fluorescent overhead lighting going like, why? Three kids. I look like hell. I mean, Everything is dripping and moving in the wrong direction. <laughs> so there's moments where I still really just wish I could be a head in a box because really isn't this where everything's generating from anyhow? <laughs> but quitting it in a real way is finding ways to have value outside of how you're being perceived. And oddly, I got that through acting, <laughs> which doesn't make any sense because I don't want people looking at me and yet, that's the career I chose. And also it gave me validation in a weird way. But I do know when I look back that I quit that. Not perfectly. I mean, you have to have this relationship with food for the rest of your life. Mm. But having my primary identity, having my primary coping mechanism, everything about my life be about this control, control, control. I absolutely made a conscious effort to quit a long time ago. I wanted to zoom out to look at your life for a second. I feel like you've really had many adventures. <laughs> you have obviously been to the pinnacle of, you're going to reject this immediately, but the pinnacle of Hollywood, you have- I had a barf. Look at you. <laughs> you've been in a mental hospital. You have had an eating disorder. You've been married. You have been divorced. You're a mom, but you've really lived a full, full, full life. How have you decided which people get to be in your life during all of these adventures? Well, work makes it really easy. Work is the greatest, and it's also the biggest cop-out. I've been working a lot, and those people, especially the last 11 years, those people become your family, and they become your day-to-day, -day, and they become your life. It's like being on a basketball team or a sports team, I should say, any sports team where you all have a unified goal. You don't all see each other all the time. You don't always get along, but you are on a team. And those people became my people. Then we stopped doing Modern Family, and then COVID came, and it was like someone just turned the water off. And you realize, now I have to go and really answer that question. Who do I want to have in my life? And who am I going to make an effort to see, to connect with? And I found myself going back to people I knew from high school and college. Mm. I don't know. It just feels like those are the relationships that I want to tend to right now, most of all. Maybe it's a part of being in search of, sorry to sound lofty, but... Figure out who I am right now and 
what I want and what's next in my life and reconnecting with that part of me, like a pre-Hollywood time. And I have lots of friends still from LA and people I've met through work and doing film and television, but the people I really want to connect with right now are my cousins and old friends because it feels like that's where I need to go to reset. And they're not the least bit impressed by me or anything I have or have achieved. Really? They forget it all the time. I was hanging out with a friend and we're talking about noses. And my friend has this beautiful nose, but thin nostrils. And we were complaining because we both have thin nostrils. Yes, this was a... This I'm was, so scared to ask what a beautiful nose looks like. I said, I love flared nostrils. And my friend said, what do you mean you love... I said, the perfect nose is Candace Bergen. She's this long, and then it flares. Oh, and my friend said, you know what? I met Candace Bergen, and she was so nice. And I just looked at my friend, and I was like, are you fucking kidding? No, I met her. I met her on a yacht. And I said, I worked with her for two fucking years. <laughs> my friend said, oh, I always forget that. Literally, she wants to tell me about being on a yacht with Candace Bergen and how cool that was. My aunt, one day, we were going skiing, and she's like, well, you would not believe how much makeup these people on television have to wear. <laughs> and I went, what? She was yesterday when we were leaving Seattle, and I was in the coffee shop, and I see our local news anchor, and she's in it. She, you would not believe the makeup people have to wear. And I said, really? Because I think she's putting me on. And I said, really? She goes, you know why? It's the lights. <laughs> Wendy, I'm on TV. <laughs> and she's like, oh, I always forget that. And I love that. I love that. My family and friends don't think of me that way at all. So this is the most real people in your life. All right. So this is our first episode. How do you want to wrap up? I don't know. Do you have an answer? Rachel is our producer and my life wife. It's like, why don't you just say you love each other? Rachel, not everybody <laughs> does that. Maybe we go to the feelings class across the hall, across okay. May 5. Yes. And you could just pick a feeling from the board that let us know how you feel right now. I don't know what feelings are on the board, but... All of them. I feel happy. Happy. I feel emotionally lighter. Nice. I do after this. And I also am exhausted. I want to lie down. Oh, yeah. This isn't just chatting, man. I know. It's tapping an insecurity for me a little bit. I think sometimes I can be a little heavy for people. I think sometimes, can we just hang out and laugh and it not be serious? You know, tell me about the deepest, darkest thing that happened to you in the last month. We have a lot of this to do. So I don't want you to feel exhausted at the end every time. No, I'm not going to feel exhausted at the end every time. Today was about me. So that's kind of exhausting. And this whole journey of talking about quitting is going to take shape as we go forward. But I am really happy that I'm doing it with you. I'm happy too. I, feel I happy. love you, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> I love you too. All right. I think we're wrapped. Bye, Chad. Goodbye.